And that completes my final report until we reach touchdown. We're now on full automatic in the hands of the computers. I've tucked my crew in for the long sleep, and I'll be joining them soon. In less than an hour, we'll finish our sixth month out of Cape Kennedy. Six months in deep space. By our time, that is. According to Dr. Hasline's theory of time in a vehicle traveling nearly the speed of light, the Earth has aged nearly 700 years since we left it. Well, we've aged hardly at all. I leave the 20th century with no regrets, but tell me, though, does man, that marvel of the universe, that glorious paradox who sent me to the stars, still make war against his brother? Keep his neighbor's children starving? There was a time when the Twilight Zone and the film Planet of the Apes were just two things that I liked. As a youngster hooked on the mind-expanding universe of the Twilight Zone and the adventure of Planet of the Apes, what went on behind the camera was of no concern to me. But were these just two things that I liked? Or was there more to it than that? As I got older, those things behind the camera did become more important to me, and I became interested in just who did make these things on the screen happen. Then one day, on a routine rewatch, it all became clear that the 1968 film Planet of the Apes feels like a feature-length Twilight Zone is no coincidence, because right there in the opening credits, it says, written by Michael Wilson and Rod Serling. So once that penny did drop and I realised that the Twilight Zone and Planet of the Apes had that Rod Serling connection, that opening monologue by Charlton Heston's character Taylor stood out to me. It seemed to have that sailing ring to it. As Taylor sits in his spaceship, in a reflective mood, he ponders what will happen to humankind while he goes into hypersleep. Will man still make war against his brother? Surely this came from the typewriter of Rod Sailing. Well, the truth is, it's not that simple. Tonight we're going to walk through a doorway into a very special movie studio and as we walk its halls and explore its sound stages and production offices we'll come to a filing cabinet filled with tattered scripts and faded memos and the label on the cabinet simply reads What If? And as we search through the drawers and read those scripts and memos our attention will be drawn to a battered canister of film sitting atop the cabinet. Ladies and gentlemen, as we load that film into the projector and the screen lights up, we'll see the opening titles of the movie and realise that we're standing in a studio where all of the never-made things become made. Because this movie studio was built at the very centre of the Twilight Zone. And the title on the screen reads Rod Serling's Planet of the Apes.
All bulkheads pressure tight. Zero gravity constant. ADF off. Manual communications on. Manual orbital positions set to on. an echoey sound of a buzzer. A panel of lights light up. With a loud click, three metal covers unfasten themselves and swing up. Three sliding shelves come out from the wall and we're looking at our first flesh and blood astronauts. Thomas, Dodge and Lefevre. In the order of their appearance, Thomas is a tall broad-shouldered man, middle thirties, square jutted jaw, deep-set eyes. Dodge is the youngest, very early twenties. Stocky, mercurial, full of pent-up energies. Lefevre, the oldest of the three, pushing forty. Soft-spoken, introspective, observant. As they awake almost in unison, they remain horizontal, switching on weights to their limbs and then carefully unaccustomed to the complete lack of gravity, move carefully across the area toward the control section. What do you think, Johnny? We're in orbit. Around what? What is that out there? A planet? An asteroid? Look at the size of it. How far out are we, Johnny? A light year, maybe. A light year? We've been gone a couple of years? A couple of years, a couple of moments. I don't know what this time divergent is in space. Nobody knows. We may have just finished a two hour nap, but on Earth? While on Earth, a century's gone by. I think we can forget Earth for a while now. We're three Rip Van Winkles, gentlemen, and we've just finished our naps. Somebody pay the conductor. This is where we get off. So that's where our heroes get off. But where did Rod Sailing get on? To understand that, we'll have to go right back to the beginning. In 1963, when the Twilight Zone was heading for its conclusion a year later, the French author Pierre Boulle released his science fiction novel, Planet of the Apes. In it, a journalist called Ulysse Meru heads to the stars as the guest of the wealthy Professor Antel and his protégé, Arthur Levain, a far cry from the three square-jawed American astronauts from the 1968 movie. And if you only know this book by reputation, then you've probably heard that it concerns a more technologically advanced race of apes than we saw in that movie. They drive cars, they fly in airplanes, they trade on the stock market, and you've also probably heard that it is significantly different to the film we ended up getting. Well, yes and no. Now I'm going to get into spoiler territory here, so if you haven't read the book and want to, 
then please take this as a warning. And also, if you've managed to get hold of Rod Serling's script and want to read it, then take this as a warning too. While it's true there are a lot of differences between Pierre Boulle's book and the movie, the first half of the book actually more or less hangs together with what we get in the finished film. The differences are here and there. In that book, a trio of space travellers land on the planet and initially believe themselves to be the only inhabitants until they encounter a race of primitive humans who lack the ability to speak. One of them is a beautiful woman called Nova. Like in its movie counterpart, Ulysse is captured during a human hunt and held in a cage with some of the indigenous humans, while he desperately tries to convince the brilliant ape scientist Zira that he is intelligent. When he finally does convince her, it's here that the book version and the film version begin to diverge. Instead of being put on trial by the apes for heresy, like Taylor is in the 1968 film, Ulysses is actually given his freedom and accepted into the ape society. Or is he? How Bull's novel ended we'll touch upon later, but in terms of the meaning of the whole thing, you can probably take several meanings from the literary planet of the apes and several interpretations will be valid. I find that even decades later the book hasn't really dated and it does take on new meaning as it goes on. For me reading it recently I found there to be many themes but perhaps because of the times we live in it seemed to be about the falseness of that acceptance of this man of another species. The dominant society, in this case ape society, paying lip service to accepting Ulysses and allowing him to live among them, but it is only a very surface acceptance. It's an acceptance based upon certain conditions, often unspoken. We will accept you, but only if you stay in your place. And then there's this paranoia that his race will rise up and overthrow them. So instead of trying to find a way to coexist peacefully, finding a way to recognise the value in Ulysses and in humanity, the barriers suddenly go up when the apes feel that he is overstepping the mark. And it speaks to the idea that the dominant race of a given country may appear accepting of others, but in reality, those others will always be the perpetual foreigner, no matter how much they integrate themselves. It's a shame that Pierre Boulle actually thought Planet of the Apes to be one of his lesser works. I think it's immensely valuable, and although he wrote such great works as Bridge Over the River Kwai, in terms of legacy and sheer volume of work that has been spawned as a result of it, I don't really think any of his other works can really match where Planet of the Apes went. But forgetting for the moment what we actually got in the Planet of the Apes movie, and based purely on Bull's novel, you can see why this ponderous examination of humanity would seem an obvious fit for Rod Serling. But as we go through these documents and examine this script and film, to understand exactly where Rod Serling does fit, I'm going to call on an old friend of the show, 
Amy Ball Johnston, board member of the Rod Sailing Memorial Foundation and writer of the book Unknown Sailing, an episodic history. Amy, last time we spoke, um, in the feedback that I got from listeners, people seemed to really enjoy hearing about you digging around in the sailing archives. In terms of what's there to do with Planet of the Apes, what what kind of materials are we talking about? Um, Planet of the Apes, there's not a lot in the Sterling Archive itself. There was some in Wisconsin. Um, the script in Ith- Ithaca Archive has more, but the Ithaca Archive is closed to the public. Right. But the place that I would recommend is the um, Franklin Schaffner Archive. The Franklin Schaffner Archive is at the William and Marshall, Franklin and Marshall College. Uh-huh. Outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Franklin Marshall College. And then the Alfred P. Jacobs Estate is... Their records are in a college in outside of Los Angeles, but not a lot on Sterling. And that's probably because after Sterling wrote his required scripts, he was done with it. Uh-huh. What I found from Sterling was the 1968 letters he wrote when they approached him about writing a sequel. With Pierre Bull's novel itself, what do you think made Sailing a good fit for that material? It's a, it's a tale of morality, and what Sterling originally approached it as was a tale of morality. Mm-hmm. He was winding up The Twilight Zone. He wanted to do a film, and I think this gave him enough of an edge where he could do it. Um, he was not originally the original writer proposed, though. They originally wanted Patty Chayefsky to be the writer. One of the best existing resources for Rod Sailing's thoughts on his involvement with Planet of the Apes is a 1975 interview with the Planet of the Apes Marvel comic. And in that interview he said, I first became involved with Planet of the Apes about 10 years ago. I was approached by an outfit called the King Brothers, who did mostly Indian elephant pictures, which were shot for about $1.80, because elephants didn't have a union then. The King Brothers had a notion about doing the Pierre Boulle book as a nickel and dime picture, I was convinced that it could be done at the time, and as I recall, I did a whole treatment for them, a scene-by-scene breakdown of how we would lick the problem. They ultimately discarded it because of the ape population. In my research, I came across this Marvel Comics interview with Sailing from 1975, and he says that he first became involved with Planet of the Apes when the King Brothers had the property, and they approached him to do it. Now... This is literally the only mention that I can find about this King Brothers thing with Planet of the Apes. Have you come across anything in your research that sheds a bit more light on that? I do know, all all I know is that the King Brothers did approach him. Originally, it was through the King Brothers, which does not make any sense to me because the Alfred P. Jacobs documents I have, they were trying to sell the film before the book even came out. They were going to producers... Um, with proposals for the film. Um, So I don't know the story about the King Brothers, how they were involved, and how they exited the business. Um, I don't know that story. But I do know Jacobs was the first person to deal with the rights to the book. So without more information about exactly what that King Brothers adaptation was, we have to kind of accept that little gap in the narrative. But when that gap closes, it's here that we need to talk about 
maybe the most important man in bringing Planet of the Apes to the big screen, and that's a man called Arthur P. Jacobs. Arthur Jacobs loved film, and while he didn't have the tools to be an actor, writer or director himself, he still had a massive enthusiasm for movies. So if he couldn't make them himself, he would use that enthusiasm and drive to become a producer, so he could manoeuvre the projects he wanted to see onto the big screen. He was a mover and shaker, a man whose dogged determination could never be dampened, no matter how many times the film studio slammed the door in his face. Now Mort Abrams, who acted as associate producer on the finished Planet of the Apes movie, said, In 1963, Arthur had gone to France and met with Alain Berheim, who was a literary agent in Paris, and he was a friend of Arthur's, and he gave him the Pierre Boulle novel. Arthur read it and was immediately struck by it. He called Richard Zanuck, head of 20th Century Fox, who was, I believe, in London at the time. Arthur called him from Paris and gave him a kind of two-sentence description on the phone. And Zanuck said, I'll buy it for you. And he did. He optioned the rights for Arthur. Zanuck was so intrigued with this 30-second synopsis on the phone that he never really stopped to consider the problem of actually turning the book into a film. I think in a lot of ways this quote characterises the whole process of the making of the first Planet of the Apes movie. You have Arthur P. Jacobs, this man who is getting by on pure enthusiasm and determination while he learns how to be a producer, either exciting people into coming on board his projects or just doggedly pursuing them until they do. And at these initial stages we have to remember that nothing had been done like this before. The scale seemed monumental. Not only did the book need to be adapted, but they needed to figure out how to put talking apes on screen. But actually this was a long way off. Now that Jacobs had the option, he still needed to get someone to finance the picture, and he needed to start attracting names with some Hollywood cachet. To make the studios take notice, the first director to jump aboard was J. Lee Thompson, the British director who had success with films like The Guns of Navarone and Cape Fear, and with Thompson on board, they set about making their pitch. The Planet of the Apes Initial notes regarding production and story treatment Agreed upon by J. Lee Thompson and Arthur P. Jacobs October 25th, 1963 The Planet of the Apes is a rip-roaring horror story A classic thriller utilising the best elements of King Kong, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Things to Come, The Birds, and other film classics the sole object of doing this is to entertain and thrill, nothing more. We see this not just as a film, but rather as an attraction, which will appeal to all ages and all audiences. It should be talked about on a worldwide basis as the most unusual film ever made. In regards to the social satire, it will not be commented upon as it is inherent in the material, However, the picture will be created firstly and mainly 
as the horror adventure film of all time. It is important to note, however, that we feel there is great comedy inherent in this project, as well as wonderful pathos which will develop from the characters. We must not underestimate the humour, as well as the shock which can come from these situations. Aimed for spring or early summer of 1964, I believe we will have an edge over two other large-scale productions, Brave New World and The Martian Chronicles, which are somewhat in the same vein and scope as Planet of the Apes. In regard to the novel, there are certain major alterations we feel necessary to further enhance the property as a motion picture. Firstly, the opening sequence of the story should be greatly simplified, and the floating bottle, etc., should be eliminated. Basically, we would start with Ulysses and his people leaving Earth, the United States, not France, to explore this new planet. While the picture itself is the star, and we plan to use good character actors for principal parts, it is our conviction that utilising a star for the part of Ulysses would greatly enhance the picture, lifting it above and beyond what conceivably might be thought of as an exploitation special. Our initial thinking is that Marlon Brando or Paul Newman or Bert Lancaster would be ideally suited for the role of Ulysses. There are several newer stars such as Steve McQueen, George Peppard, Rod Taylor, etc., who could properly do it, but we do not feel they would give it the prestige the picture should have. In regard to the casting of Nova, ideally this could be portrayed by Ursula Andress or Possibly we would unleash an international search for the most fantastic beauty to be discovered for films. Having thoroughly budgeted the book and our treatment of it, we have arrived at a figure of $957,600 below the line without overhead. Needless to say, we feel Planet of the Apes can be the most exploitable, exciting and most talked about motion picture of our time, a box office bonanza. J. Lee Thompson and Arthur P. Jacobs, October 25th, 1963. So with the film rights in his back pocket and J. Lee Thompson provisionally on board, what Arthur P. Jacobs needed now was some celebrity muscle behind the project a big name backing the project that would make it irresistible to film studios. It was time to go out and find those people. From out of the jungle area comes score upon score of human beings advancing slowly towards the three men. Their steps are wary and tense. There are men, women and children, dressed, if at all, in loincloths and animal fairs. And the impression is that of two-legged animals torn between fear and curiosity. From their rank comes an occasional skittering sound, like that of a monkey, a responsive grunt but nothing even remotely resembling a language. A few of the people stand about an arm's length from the astronauts. 
Two of the men look carefully at Lefevre and Dodge, then turn their eyes in the direction of Thomas, the only one in clothing. One of them grunts at the other one, and in a single motion the second, man, suddenly reaches out and tries to rip the shirt from Thomas' body. Thomas steps back a foot, the other two men leap to their feet. Thomas puts out a restraining hand. Now Thomas rises and divests himself of the tattered shirt. The people react with low jabberings, an occasional nod, nothing resembling honest emotion and especially nothing remotely resembling a smile. But if anything, there's an affirmation in evidence, a satisfaction that Thomas has done something to their liking. Almost as if by some extrasensory signal, they gradually sit down in the sand, a few of them bringing over coconuts, which they pound together to open. As they too sit back down in the sand, Thomas looks across towards a group of women, rises to his knees, beckons for the coconut that the women are trying to break open. The women look from the coconut to Thomas, totally uncomprehending. Thomas walks over towards them. They shrink back away from him. He picks up the coconut, takes a knife from his belt, drives it into the coconut, splitting it and then pulling it apart. He then hands them the two pieces. We then focus on a youngish woman with long, wild hair, but a face like an oil painting in which someone has dulled the colours. We are looking at a strange, formless beauty that comes without emotion. It is almost a mask. In the film world, things tend to come in waves. A genre like science fiction will sometimes be the darling of the film industry, churning out hit after hit, but when those hits dry up, the genre will again need to prove itself in the next generation, and someone will need to take a chance on that genre again to see if it's viable. Now, in the early 1960s, cinema had seen a decade or more of flying saucers battling Earth. Films like The Day the Earth Stood Still and The War of the Worlds still stand up as classics of the genre, but it was a genre that couldn't just pump out flying saucer movies again and again. It was waiting for the next big thing. With trying to find that next big thing comes that risk, and movie studios can be incredibly shy when it comes to being the first ones to do it. So although he did have the rights to Planet of the Apes, Arthur P. Jacobs' partnership with J. Lee Thompson wasn't to last long. The two men did share a passion for it, and J. Lee Thompson would actually come back to the series down the line, but the timing just wasn't right, and Thompson wouldn't be available to work on the first movie for some time. Thompson said, What happened is we'd formed a company and did a film called What A Way To Go, and then as far as I can remember, Planet of the Apes, which we were going to do. We were also going to do Doctor Doolittle, but Arthur had enormous difficulty in putting together the Apes film. After that, 
I had gone off to do other films. A producer can have 10 different projects going, but I'm not a producer, I'm a director. Of course, when I saw the success of the film, I rude the day, but really, I didn't have a choice. January 22nd, 1964. Dear Alan, we are sending you this letter after many discussions as to exactly how we feel we should proceed in regard to Planet of the Apes. The status is as follows. 1. After delaying and delaying a final meeting, Fox have come to the decision that they will not go ahead unless the picture can be made for $1 million, even though they feel the terms you and Jerry discussed on the phone were most acceptable. The $1 million includes overhead, so actually there is only $750,000 for the total above and below the line costs, which makes it totally impossible to proceed on anything but a Sam Katzman type effort, something which we would not be interested in, nor I'm certain would you. Two, when Paramount budgeted the picture at $2,800,000, their conversation was, the only way we would be interested would be around $1,500,000. Therefore, we called Jack Carp to give him the great news that we could now make the picture at close to $1,500,000. But his answer was, Paramount has lost all interest in this subject matter, and there is no point in having a meeting and taking your time. 3. We had a very stormy meeting with David Picker, Bob Benjamin, and Arthur Krim, during which David was pushing as hard as one could to make a deal, while Bob was absolutely firm in his feeling that there was no way to make this into a movie. The conversation ended in a complete deadlock, with David and the two of us on one side, and Bob on the other. As you know, we have put more effort, enthusiasm, and sell into trying to get this project launched than we believed anyone else could have. On top of this, Lou Blau, Phil Kellogg, and Joe Schoenfeld all read the book. They actually did, and pitched it with great and real enthusiasm. So that, in essence, you have had five people actively representing your property. In view of this lack of imagination that seems to be prevalent with the studio and or company heads, it seems to us that we should stop everything and reevaluate the entire ape's situation. More important than the money now, we believe, is the fact of who is going to direct and write it and how much weight they have. For example, we believe that if we had gone to UA or Fox or Paramount and said, Tony Richardson is directing the picture, and John Osborne is writing it, and Paul Newman wants to do it, and it costs $2,500,000, we would have had a meeting and probably a deal. In other words, we believe that if Tony Richardson or Blake Edwards would say that this is their next picture, the studios would go along with them. Even this may be wrong, but it's at least an approach. Needless to say, on the higher budget, Boole's price would be readjusted accordingly. On the limited budget, it is near to impossible to come up with a writer and director who are so hot or so exciting that a studio would say, we have to make this. Let us analyze, therefore, what creative people have read it, know about it, or like it. Lee Thompson loves it, but is not available for a year and a half or closer to two years. Stuart Steen loves it and would like to do the screenplay on the lower budget. Mervyn Leroy has asked to read it, since from what he has heard about it, it sounds as though it might be a picture he would like to direct. 
Although I'm not certain that Mervyn could get it through UI. Arthur is told through his cutter on his Fox picture that Fritz Lang is ecstatic about it and would like to direct it. An interesting idea, but we don't know if he's financeable. We have given it to Patty Chayefsky to read, as he might well want to write it, and this would be a hot name. Paul Newman, as you know, wants to do it, and will commit on 50 pages or a treatment, but that puts us into the $2,500,000 to $3 million category. Marlon Brando is back in town, and we hope to find out this week his actual reaction to the material, since if he does like it, UI, and this is the only way they are interested, would like to go into it further. In order to do this properly, it would seem that we need a reasonable length of time during which this would remain exclusive with us in order to permit us to approach the top creative talent in the business on the basis of the original high-budget concept. Among the people whom we would want specifically to approach immediately are Serge Bourguignon, Stanley Kubrick, Tony Richardson, John Frankenheimer, Blake Edwards, Delbert Mann. You certainly know that if we, with these elements, cannot make a deal for this project, then surely during the same period of time you would not find it possible to sell the property outright to a studio with no elements. Both of us feel that if we had the property exclusively until May 31st, we would be able to approach this intelligently and make the best possible deal for all of us. Would you please cable us, as soon as possible, your thinking on any of the above? Kindest personal regards, Arthur P. Jacobs. So Jacobs approached MGM, Paramount, and United Artists for distribution deals, but all passed on the movie. And negotiations did begin with Fox Studios, and considering that its head, Richard Zanuck, had actually generously bought the rights for Jacobs based on a short story pitch, when he was confronted with the proposed budget of $1,710,000, they started to get a little gun-shy. And Mort Abrams, the associate producer of the finished movie, said, at this point, Fox decided that they would give Arthur a crack at doing it elsewhere. It went into turnaround. They said, we're not in a position to do the picture at this moment. And if you can set it up elsewhere, we'll allow you to do it. All we want is our money back. So this was a frustrating time for Arthur P. Jacobs. Because having landed on this planet of the apes... He was now having to deal with the most savage species of them all, the studio executives. We suddenly hear the sound of a car engine, straining in a low gear and getting louder. Nobody can kid me, that's a car. You got no argument, that's what it is. Look at them, as the people start to run in different directions, mothers picking up babies on the run, the sense of the moment being terror that is pure and naked. We focus on Dodge as his eyes go wide open, his jaw drops, 
he lets out a wail of almost frenzied laughter. Oh my god, I've now seen everything there is to be seen in the whole bloody universe. We see a jeep come to a stop at the edge of a clearing, and as we pan up slowly from the front grill to the windshield, there standing are two apes, dressed immaculately in the white garb and pith helmets of British hunters. Behind them on foot come several other groups of apes, chimpanzees and orangutans in assorted sizes and shapes, but all dressed as members of a safari, carrying guns of different calibre. There is suddenly a fuselage of shots. Dodger's face goes pasty white. He lets out one small gasp as his fingers clutch at a bloody mass that was his stomach. Then he topples over. Dodge! Dodge! Get! Thomas suddenly grabs at his throat as a bullet pierces his neck from the side. Hundreds of clothed apes and monkeys fire shots at the masses of fleeing people and literally droves of humans are wiped out by the gunfire. One of the apes tilts his helmet back, takes out a pack of cigarettes, offers one to his companion, who takes it, then accepts a light from a lighter. Good show. Not a bad bag at that. My god, look at that. Lying face down on the ground, the wound pulsing in his neck, the figure of Thomas. Now I've seen everything. Where do you suppose he got our clothes? He examines the wound on Thomas' neck. He's still alive. Shall I put the poor beast out of his misery? Are you kidding? This might be a trained one who escaped. Might be worth a little extra at that. Throw him on the truck. Over here, boys. Put this one on the truck. Ian Sailing's script, you know, when we first meet the apes, he writes it with these, the apes dressed like British safari hunters. Yes. And he also has a scene where Nova talks later on. And I, I have a shelf full of books about Planets of the Apes here. And in one of them, one of the commentators who writes the book describes these things as quite silly. It is silly. Planet of the Apes is a campy film. I also look at the time of when this came out. And a lot of the humor then was campy. And it's a caricature. I mean, the caricature that Serling wrote, some of the scenes that didn't even make it are a caricature upon um, the society. And I argue that the finished film, which Wilson wrote, is a caricature on masculinity. Right. So it is campy. It's not, this was not Seven Days in May. So at this time, Arthur B. Jacobs was adrift and alone. He was not only looking for a studio to finance the picture, but he was also looking for a director with whom he could start that creative process. He was looking for a writer who could actually adapt a novel, and he was still trying to get a star on board. So he was in this situation where the addition of one of those things could result in the others coming on board. If he got a big star interested, then maybe the studio would be interested but he couldn't get a big star interested without a script or a good treatment. So all of these things were up in the air. Without one of them, he couldn't get the others. So what Arthur P. Jacobs really needed 
was a friend. How are we today? Feeling better, are we? Hmm, can't even growl, huh? Hmm, great staying power. Marvelous resilience. They said you were probably an escaped circus animal or something. You gave our people quite a start at that. The trousers. This ring, probably. Now what is it this time? Hurt just a little bit, does it? Well, we'll keep you on liquid, old-timer, and we'll have that bandage off in a week or so. You just relax there. Here we are. Can you come and get it? Can you come and get the sugar? Arthur Jacobs' instincts were right. The production did need a friend, and it found one in the shape of writer, producer and director, Blake Edwards. Perhaps best known now for writing and directing the hit movie The Pink Panther from 1963, and then being the guardian of the series from then on. And at that time, he was also a successful writer and director on television, having created the successful television show Peter Gunn and written consistently for television throughout the 50s and early 60s. So his star was rising and the one-two punch of the Pink Panther in 1963 and its sequel A Shot in the Dark in 1964 had well and truly put him on the map. So with Blake Edwards' involvement, Arthur Jacobs had that name that the studios would take notice of, and Warner Brothers agreed to produce Planet of the Apes, and a jubilant Arthur P. Jacobs wrote to Alan Bernheim with the news. March 11th, 1964. It was a tough battle, but we made it. We have not let one word out to the trades or to anyone, and I hope you will keep it quiet over there as we are trying to work out a startling way to announce this via the Telstar, which will take about two weeks if we can do it. If it comes off properly, it should break every newspaper in the world, with the sketches being beamed from Telstar. So please, please say nothing. I am sure that Pierre Boulle will be happy as you will, to know that Rod Serling is going to do the screenplay and will start this week. But that is also secret until we make our initial announcement. We are planning to go into production in late January. And for your confidential information, Shirley MacLaine is very excited about playing Zira. Arthur P. Jacobs. So with his director in place, Arthur Jacobs and Blake Edwards could now start to look for a writer. After his initial involvement with Planet of the Apes had fallen through, Sailing said, I never heard any more about it until I got a call from Blake Edwards, who was the next individual to get into it, and who was going to produce and direct it. I was told by Blake to go, not to worry about money. It was going to be a big one. But what exactly was Rod Sailing signing up for? This Warner Brothers inter-office memo from March 11th, 1964 spells it out. We have made a deal with the above writer to prepare a screenplay on Planet of the Apes for Patricia Productions. The terms are as follows. 
Starting date will be Monday, March 16, 1964. Compensation will be $125,000, payable in five annual equal installments of $25,000 each, beginning January 1965. Sailing will deliver a first draft screenplay within a period of 12 weeks, and thereafter, the studio will have a two-week reading period, after which Mr. Sailing will prepare a first set of revisions within a period of four weeks. The studio will then have a second two-week reading period, after which Sailing will prepare a second set of revisions within a period of two weeks. Sailing has also agreed to deliver a third set of revisions if called upon to do so prior to the start of camera work, provided he is available at the time. However, this does not restrict the studio's right to use another writer for final revisions should it choose to do so. Now, I've read some very critical opinions of Rod Sailing's first script, the one we're kind of talking about tonight. I think what a lot of these people forget who criticise it is that it is just a first draft. So, you know, do you think that Sailing wrote this with the expectation that he would end up changing it quite significantly? I believe he did. He also... He was coming at the end, I mean, he signed the contract in 1964, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So it was at the end of the Twilight Zone. Um, he had, he, by then, the fight with CBS was fully engaged with each other to the point of isolationism. And I think he thought he could get away with a lot of stuff. Right. But I also thought he would be reined in. I don't know any person who's ever had a uh, script who did not think there would be corrections, especially a first I truly believe he thought that this would be uh, a draft that would be added on. That was part of his contract, uh-huh. that it would be constant revisions. And I assume that he thought on the set there would be revisions as well. So with this deal, there was a certain amount of negotiation and rewrites built in. It was expected that Sailing would deliver a draft, submit it, and then be given a set of revisions. So this was on the table from the beginning. But within it, there was also this clause that in the end, if the studio wanted to use another writer, then they could bring another writer in. And those reasons could be anything. If they wanted another writer to alter Sailing's work, they could do it. But also, if Sailing no longer wanted to be involved in the project, then he could make his escape too. The hot, bright sun bathes the area in white light. There are groups of people sitting around in small clusters, each of them chained to one of several posts embedded in the ground. An attendant walks by with a large bucket of food. He unlocks one of the center chains, then whistles and beckons as people rise lethargically and move to a corner of the compound. He lays the bucket down, Immediately, grunting humans surround it, digging at it with their bare hands, while the attendant picks up another bucket and starts towards another post, where other humans wait. On the other side of the compound, at a small delivery truck, other attendants are removing cans of food. Thomas sits more or less by himself, away from the others, 
an attendant comes over to unlock his chain. Nova, who is closest to him, immediately rushes with the others towards a bucket of food. Halfway there, she stops, looks inquiringly back toward Thomas, then, following instinct rather than anything else, she moves with the others toward the food. As Thomas slowly rises to his feet, his eyes scan the compound yard until they fix on the small delivery truck, its driver's seat open. He continues to stare at it. As he walks slowly toward the open front door, he looks left and right. Most of the attendants are watching the humans eat. No one is close to the truck. As Thomas gets there, again, a look around him, then poised as if to leap into the driver's seat, he stops abruptly. The keys are not there. Over Thomas' shoulder, we see the truck driver talking to one of the attendants, still swinging the ignition keys. He waves goodbye, starts back towards his truck, pushes up the tailgate, locks it shut, then moves over to the cab and inside. Thomas stands there watching as the truck engine is started and the vehicle pulls away. When the truck leaves, the spot where Thomas was standing is now empty. As the truck moves slowly down the street, it passes stores with eight mannequins in the window, chimps and monkeys walking back and forth on the sidewalk, a guerrilla policeman directing traffic, past a movie marquee with a large picture in the front of two monkeys in a passionate embrace. A classroom full of young chimps move in a column of twos down the walk, past a giant heroic statue of a gorilla astride a horse. One of the children stops and stares, transfixed, his eyes wide, he points in front of him. Teacher, look! Look at the escaped man! Thomas races over lawn onto sidewalk, across a crowded street. As he approaches a curb, one foot fails to clear it, and he sprawls headlong onto the floor. He remains there motionless for an instant, then scrambles to his feet, smashing against the store window. He tends to face a mob of monkeys, chimps and gorillas closing in on him. Some are dressed in business suits, policemen's uniforms, sports clothes. He opens his mouth desperately trying to form words and give them voice but nothing comes out. Finally, in desperation, he goes through a series of pantomimes, pointing to himself, his throat, his mouth, drawing figures in the air trying to simulate a spaceship, there is an audience around him, in total silence, which is replaced by a growing laughter. The eyes of the audience look upward to something beyond Thomas. He becomes aware that they're no longer looking at him, and that their laughter is directed to something else. He slowly turns to look over his shoulder. Behind him is a store with a large sign that reads, Professor Monty's Trained Man Emporium. In the window directly behind Thomas is a man. He's dressed in five inches too short slacks, a pork pie hat, the remnant of a shirt, and he is mimicking everything that Thomas has done. Thomas closes his eyes. 
throws his head back as if wanting to scream, and we see the reflection of the trained man doing identically the same thing. This reflection is wiped out by the faces and forms of the apes as they converge on Thomas and drag him away. If we take Pierre Boulle's original novel, which is a serious and contemplative piece, and then take J. Lee Thompson and Arthur P. Jacobs' original treatment, where they're talking about the film more as an adventure, there does seem to be a disconnect there, so it was up to Sailing to find that middle ground, add some of that action to the proceedings, and the escape of Thomas seems to be the way of inserting some of that pace into the proceedings. But still sailing is adding some symbolism there. Thomas has been reduced to the same state as the trained human who is there for the amusement of the apes, but both are overcome by the images of the apes in the end. You, you showed me a document, uh, the, the kind of first pitch from Arthur Jacobs and J. Lee Thompson, and yes. the way they talk about it, it's this real rip-roaring adventure type film, you know, and they even go so far as to say the object of doing this is to entertain and thrill, nothing more, um, which yes. kind of seems to clash with sailing a bit. And they, they really play down the social aspect to it. Do you kind of feel that from the get-go what Arthur Jacobs wanted and what he was likely to get from sailing were, were two different things? Well, I look at who they proposed as the writers, who they proposed as the director, mm -hmm. who they proposed mm -hmm. as the actors. And I and I wonder if they were selling, this is going to be an action, summer adventure, you know, rip-roaring hit for the money. But then they wanted Paul Newman in the lead. And they uh, wanted Blake uh, Edwards to direct. So you have to look at that and wonder, were they selling this for the, for the dollars and then really write a different film? And when you look at the test sequences that were written... I don't know any producers that would have read that and thought it was anything other than a thoughtful film. Uh -huh. Serling is not an action writer. He's known for his dialogue, not exactly for um, his fight scenes. So Serling now had the most difficult job of all, creating a base on which to build the movie and adapting Bull's work into something that would satisfy Jacob's vision of excitement and adventure but also be commercial enough for the studios. And in the Marvel Comics interview, Sailing said, My earliest version of the script featured an ape city, much like New York. It wasn't carved out of rocks with caves on the side of a hill. It was a metropolis. Everything related to anthropoid. The automobiles, the buildings, the elevators, the rooms, the furniture... The script was very long, and I think the estimate of the production people was that if they had shot the script, it would cost no less than a hundred million dollars. You know, by the time they created an ape population, clothed it, and built a city for them to live in. Then Arthur Jacobs got into it, as I recall. Arthur said it could be done, but not for that kind of money. So I redid it, with an eye towards a very special society, one that was semi-primitive, semi-civilized, 
I think I did about three drafts of the original screenplay. Then he's asked what the problems of the production were, and he said, well, I think the major one was to make apes speak and not get a laugh. The whole thing was to make an audience believe it and take it seriously. Mine was a very free adaptation of the original material. Actually, it was not an adaptation. It was based on the book by Pierre Boulle. There's quite a distinction. So when Rod Serling did complete his first draft for Arthur Jacobs and Blake Edwards, it was time to see whether it held up to scrutiny. The subject, male animal, age approximately 35, referred to as case number 311, file number A6. The subject escaped from the laboratory compound this morning and was not apprehended until the middle of the afternoon. And while the tests are not complete, I am still convinced that he shows far better than average intelligence. In the delayed reaction experiment, the subject indicated almost instantaneous comprehension. His galvanic skin response to certain stimuli was 60% more pronounced than the previously highest subject ever used here. And while my colleagues are of a different mind as to the intelligence quotient of this subject, it is my growing conviction that there may be even a possibility of some kind of voice communication. Tomorrow, I intend to administer additional tests in perception and visual stimulation. Now, if you remember the 1968 movie, Charlton Heston's character Taylor gets a bullet wound to the throat, which causes him to be unable to speak. But in Pierre Boulle's book, Ulysse Maru speaks an earth language. He speaks French, whereas the apes speak their own simian language. And as Zira and Ulysse spend more time together, they learn each other's languages and are eventually able to converse together freely. So to skip to the end for a moment of that book, in the novel the planet is not Earth at all, it's a planet called Saror. So it makes sense that each species has its own language. And there's no need to render Ulysse mute from a gunshot wound, because he and the apes are speaking a different language anyway. But in the 1968 movie, Charlton Heston's character Taylor is on a future Earth. So it makes sense that apes would speak English as a carryover from that long-forgotten crossover period with humans. But it also makes sense that at some point Taylor should really question why the apes are speaking English. Because there really only is one answer to that. Now early discussions on the film suggested that maybe they would use a device where the hero would, through immersion with the apes, begin to understand their language. So initially the apes would be talking nonsense that he couldn't understand, but when he started to learn their language, the film would fade in English over what they were saying, so he's kind of adapted to it. But that was dropped maybe when the decision was made that the ape planet was Earth. But what I think is a little problematic in the 1968 movie 
is that the ape speaking English isn't really addressed. And Sailing doesn't tackle it here in his first draft either, but he does bring it into his next draft. If we think of it logically, then maybe it's possible that once Thomas or Taylor acknowledges that the apes are speaking English, then really speaking the game is up, we know that we're on Earth at that point. So I think the movie just conveniently brushes it under the carpet in the hope that the insanity of the main concept, talking apes, will distract the audience from this plot hole. So instead of a language barrier, Sailing uses this device of Thomas taking a bullet to the neck, which stops him from talking. And this is something that does carry through to the finished film, and it allows these scenes to take place where Thomas, or Taylor, is trying to prove he's smarter than they think he is. And it also adds that level of tension for the audience to wonder what's going to happen when he finally does speak. In the movie, it resulted in one of its most iconic lines. Go get him! Taylor! Why did you run away? Security police. I'm in charge of this man. No longer, madam. He is now in the custody of the Ministry of Science. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! When Heston delivers that line, it is after a scene where he escapes from the compound where he's being kept. Now this seems to be an amalgamation of two scenes from Rod Serling's script, the escape from the compound we've just heard, and another scene where Thomas is about to be operated on by a surgeon. So Serling's first draft was now in the hands of Jacobs and Edwards, and Unlike on the Twilight Zone, where he had that amount of executive control, this time he was a writer for hire. And having scrutinised his first effort, Jacobs and Edwards now set about dissecting it. Now this young animal is famished, hasn't eaten for 24 hours, yet he doesn't react a bit when confronted with his favorite food. That's the result of a partial ablation of the frontal brain which was performed some months ago. Uh, here's some other interesting cases. On each of these subjects we've performed an operation affecting various areas of the cerebral tissue. Now this fellow here had the whole zone of the occipital area removed. He can no longer distinguish the distance or shape of objects. And the fellow alongside there was once a rather remarkable subject. We had succeeded in training him to an astonishing degree. He answered to his name, and to a certain extent obeyed simple orders. He'd solved fairly complicated problems, and even learned how to use rudimentary tools. Today, he's forgotten all his education. He doesn't even know his own name cannot perform the slightest trick, and he's become the stupidest of all our animals as a result of a particularly difficult operation, extraction of the temporal lobules. This is an interesting case here. He'll be undergoing surgery very shortly, as soon as Dr. Zayas comes down. This one has been taught to write in full sentences. What's the bandage around his neck, Doctor? He was wounded while being hunted down. 
Hmm, that's healing very nicely. Very nicely indeed. Put this one under now, will you, nurse? <coughs> easy there, easy there. This won't hurt you. Uh, two CCs just to quiet him down. We'll give him the full dosage when he goes into surgery. No! Get away! Let me alone! After reading Rod Sailing's first draft, clearly Arthur Jacobs had some issues, so he typed a private memo to Blake Edwards. Overall, I believe we are going to have a fantastic script, but something disturbs me at this point. The lack of seriousness of the entire beginning, and, in my personal opinion, therefore the lack of believability in the characters, dialogue, and actions. I feel that before seeing the people and then the apes, the picture must have greater tension, building as to what is on the other side of the forest, and must be done in a spirit of high adventure and impending terror, which seems to be totally lacking in this first section. I've seen it written that he wrote up to 30 rewrites. I've seen it written that it's only two or three. Can, can you shed any light on that? He wrote many revisions of it, but not, a, I would say there's three of substance that were changes. Mm -hmm. The rest of it would say, can you alter this? Can you change this? Can you insert this? And he would create a whole new draft. I've read three different stories altogether. The first draft is wildly different than, I want to say, six months later when he rewrote it again. And the second and third draft resemble each other, but the first is something I've never seen before. It's a unique piece of writing. So here begins that process of Jacobs and Edwards having their say and putting their own thoughts into the script. And in a further memo to Edwards, Jacobs began to outline what he wanted changed. And the list goes. October 14th, 1964. Dear Blake, I have had several meetings and discussions with Rod Serling, and as it stands now, the next revision will incorporate the following changes, omissions, and additions. Blake, I trust you are aware that the new Serling schedule now calls for him to report November 16 for the second draft, which means it will be approximately the middle of December before we have a screenplay incorporating the suggestions that are listed herewith. Rod is 100% sold on the Rosebud ending, but feels that making the astronauts from another planet is a cheap device. I have gone through the problems that Rod felt existed, which would be eliminated by this device at the end. Rod still feels that by establishing at the beginning that the astronauts are returning to Earth after an exploratory expedition, that they have a malfunction and start towards our planet, that they could then clearly explain through dialogue that it doesn't look like Earth, that everything is wrong. The solar system seems to be different than it would be if they were landing on Earth, and that they are about to land on apparently another planet that is uncharted, which has recently entered the solar system. Rod claims there is corroborating scientific evidence that new bodies have been discovered in the solar system during our time. Once they have landed, therefore, we are positive that this is not Earth, even though there are similarities. Rod claims that if you allow him to write this version, he will positively erase any reservations you had about believability. If, after turning in this screenplay, you are still not satisfied with this approach, Rod will very quickly, a matter of a week or ten days, Go back to the approach utilizing men from another planet, though he is certain you will buy this concept once it is written. 
assuming we let Rod take this approach, the script would now go as follows. 1. Pre-title, titles through landing, scenes 1 through 13. This will be done in an expanded documentary manner, establishing the mission. The fact that the ship can land in either the conventional manner or the rocket manner, depending upon the terrain, and will incorporate the exterior shots of the ship as drawn by Don Peters. The dialogue will have to be drastically changed so that this is serious and technical. 2. The Great Adventure, scenes 13 through 29. This will be a scientific documentary-style sequence, with the astronauts testing the atmosphere, establishing their laboratory tank, repairing the malfunction, and the beginning of their exploration. And Jacobs goes on for 19 points, incorporating changes from little tweaks to taking out major plot points. And after letting Blake Edwards know what he had in mind, he formalized it into a letter to Rod Serling. November 11th, 1964. Dear Rod, herewith the high points of the suggested changes for the new draft which we discussed on the weekend, and which I thought you might want to have before our lunch with Blake on Friday. 1. Pre-title, titles through landing, scenes 1 through 13. Would be expanded in a documentary manner, explain where they are landing, land tractor, their mission, etc. We will also see the exterior of the ship heading towards the planet. 2. The Great Adventure, scenes 13 through 29. This would be the sequence with the tank whereby they go through A. Desert terrain B. Possible snowstorm C. Ocean D. Landing in jungle E. Seeing the fire F. Seeing that they are clear across the fire G. At night Seeing figure of what might be a human flitting across the headlights So the changes are all well and good. Some are genuinely improvements. Others maybe not so much. But there was one scene that really sticks out. Perhaps there is hope for him when they get back to Earth. There is no mechanical man. 12. We should consider Blake's good suggestion of Thomas's attempted rape of Nova after he has fought off another animal while Zero watches and then takes him back to the cage. 13. The big point Blake made was that Zira believes Thomas is not dissimilar to humans once before on the planet, but that humans descended from killer apes, while Zira says, we are vegetarian apes. Kindest regards, Arthur P. Jacobs. So Arthur Jacobs wanted Rod Sailing to insert a rape scene in which the main character, Thomas, actually rapes Nova. And there's a little more detail in a further memo to Blake Edwards where Jacob says, After Thomas has been accepted and is allowed to dress in suits, etc., establish his extreme loneliness and his lust for Nova. Rod must work out a rape scene where Thomas actually attacks a male animal and accidentally kills him while Nova sits waiting to see who will be the victor for her favours. It is then he must be discovered by Zira and be confronted by the fact that he too is an animal. Now, one of the interesting things, again, that I knew nothing about until you made me aware of it, is that during the writing process, at one stage, Blake Edwards and Arthur Jacobs asked Rod Serling to include a rape scene in the script. Yes. I can't really see what was in their minds when they wanted this to happen. I, I've read what Jacobs wrote about it, where he's kind of trying to show that, you know, 
uh, Thomas is still kind of an animal himself or, or whatever. What, what are your thoughts on this, this proposed rape scene? What I think is ironic about the rape scene is that they wanted Serling to write where another ape attacks Nova. Then mm. Nova watches the scene unfold to see who will win her favors. Yeah. And I find it ironic that someone wanted Rod Serling to write a scene where a man acts as his base nature, which is an animal at the end of the day, mm-hmm. in order to win the favor of someone, where that is the most anti-Serling thing I could imagine. Yeah. To, to ask Serling to write a rape scene so that you are the victor and then you get the spoils of, your, of the war, per se, I couldn't even imagine asking him that to his face. In Pierre Bull's original novel, Ulysse finds that when he's interacting with the humans of the planet, and especially Nova, there are times when he gives in to his more primitive and basic instinct. He comments on how mean he can be to Nova at times, and this is partially because of his frustration with her inability to advance to his level, but also because she is one of these primitive humans. She's accepting of the more barbaric aspects of their behavior. To be brutalized by a dominant male is just the way they are, and she doesn't give it a second thought. And while Ulysse is initially shocked by how primitive these humans are, he does at times find himself giving in to this behavior and settling into their way of doing things. And at one point, he slaps Nova and is then later ashamed of what he's done. So why is he like this? Ulysse often analyzes himself and his own behavior, and it seems that at times Pierre Boulle is commenting on how sometimes being civilized is the more difficult option, to take the moral high ground when it would just be easier to give in to the more base elements of human behavior. But also adding to this is the fact that Ulysse is a man who now lives in this world of humans and apes, but doesn't really belong to either. So even though he is this intelligent being, because he's never really truly accepted by the apes, Ulysse does regress at times to the more primitive human state, because they are essentially his people, and it seems they'll never progress to his level, so he goes to theirs. So is this proposed rape scene playing into that? Well, without more information about exactly what they were hoping to achieve by it, it is a possibility. The proposal was that it would take place after an altercation with an animal. But I just think it's a strange choice. You know, this conflict within Thomas is ripe for examination. But to have the main character, our hero, commit such a horrible act, I'm not sure there's really any coming back from that. On the surface, from what we do know, it seems to me that the decision was one more of sensationalism than any examination of human behaviour. Arthur Jacobs does mention that he wants this to appear that Thomas is confronted with the fact that he too is an animal. But Jacobs' way of how he wants it presented is quite leaden and heavy and obvious. And I think if he wanted this to be explored more by sailing, then maybe he should have just raised it to sailing 
and let Rod find the solution as the writer, because Sailing does examine these themes of where exactly Thomas fits into this world, but he does it in a much more elegant way, and without having to resort to shocking or obvious tactics like the rape scene. There's a good reason why Sailing was the writer and Jacobs the producer, and I think at times Jacobs needed to have a bit more trust in Sailing. Clearly though Rod Sailing was a professional and he was aware that throughout this process a piece of work will evolve. Now I can't find anything where he talks specifically about the rape scene, but he does respond to Arthur Jacobs' request for a change to the script. And he writes back, I'm sending a copy of this note to Blake. I've diddled around with the opening to simplify and take out a great deal of small talk. You and Blake may both want even deeper cuts to this. I personally feel that the inclusion of at least some lightness might take it off a single level and give us a little relief. But again, this is first draft stuff and not engraved in any kind of rock. I've had occasion to look over the script in its entirety and I'm not satisfied with the last 30 or 40 pages. I think the direction is probably right, but it's going to take a great deal of overhaul, tightening and improving. My fellow assembly members, we have called this special session to hear an address by a visitor to our land. He goes by the name of Thomas, and he has asked to speak to this body. Fellow assembly members, Mr. John Thomas from the planet Earth. Mr. President, members of the Assembly, I can well imagine how the figure of a man, dressed and speaking, must appear to you. I don't wonder at your laughter. But your willingness to allow me, a recent inhabitant of a cage, to speak to you, suggests that we have landed in a civilized place, peopled by civilized beings. Paradoxically, the planet I come from, Earth, is also civilized, but the repositories of wisdom and reason are men. There seems little doubt but that we can share our respective wisdoms, we can share our progress. This is why we have come to explore, to take note of other civilizations. Not as belligerents, however different we are from one another. On the planet Earth we have developed space travel, and after a journey of many, many years, we have landed here on your planet. I will, over the next few weeks and months, tell you of my planet, as I hope you will tell me of yours. I can say now that on Earth intellect is embodied in the human race. Apes, apes, I have remained in a state of savagery. It is man who has evolved. It is man's mind that the brain has developed and flourished. 
It is man who has invented language, discovered fire, made use of tools. It is man who settled my planet and changed its face. Man, in fact, who established a civilization so refined that in many respects it resembles your own. Once again, I reassure you that you need not fear us, and I hope and pray that we need have no fear of you. Our conquest of space, the victory that we of Earth have just won, that has resulted in our moving past the stars to reach you, this is your victory too. As we stand here and exchange our thoughts, our ideas, the fact that we can do so means that this conquest of the universe is your conquest as well. I thank you for letting me address you today. We have, I believe, in a glorious manner, opened a new chapter in the history of the universe. In Pierre Boulle's novel, Ulysse makes his intelligence known to the general population after Zira and Cornelius become aware of it. And he does this at some sort of conference where scientific discoveries are shown to the crowds and the press with all of the most important ape dignitaries in place. So he's took there on the pretense that he is simply meant to be an example of an intelligent human who can perform tricks beyond what most humans can do. He knows that if Dr. Zaius discovers in private that he can talk, the likelihood is that he will never see the light of day again. So he has to make the world know all at once, so he can be protected by their constant gaze. If he's to disappear, then people will ask why. So in Sailing Script, this scene survives, but it's less of a stunt, less of an exclamation by Thomas as to who he is in order to protect himself. But this time around, after they discover that Thomas can talk after the instant on the operating table, the apes are seemingly willing to let him address them and hear what he has to say. So what, what do you think it is about that one that, that made made Jacobs and Blake Edwards want him to change it so much? It's the million dollar question. <laughs> uh, one, they've always argued that it would have been too expensive to film, hmm. which even today, someone said, well, under CGI, you could film it today. I still think it would be unbelievably expensive to, basically it's modern day DC, Washington DC, yeah. you know, people yeah. with apes. It's much easier to stick a bunch of people in, horrible costumes and a lion and a man in a loincloth than it is to recreate Washington, D.C. So I think the finest has scared them. I also think that if you read the first script and you notice the humanity in it, yeah. certainly did a good job of writing a well, thoughtful, nuanced piece. And that doesn't always portray in summer blockbusters. They still expected this to be a summer, summer blockbuster. And certainly didn't do that. Certainly delivered people interacting with each other and asking them to be thoughtful. I mean, my favorite line in the entire script, and I said this in our last interview, 
was when Serling said to the cab driver, hey, buddy, to you, I look like the wrong end of a banana, but giving time and understanding, we'll see each other for who we are. Yeah, yeah. So when you say that line to get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape, mm-hmm. they're both memorable, but they both say two different stories. Now, as I've already mentioned, the first half of the original book and then the first part of Rod Serling's script both scan pretty closely to what we get in the finished film, this period of captivity for Ulysses or Thomas or Taylor. But it's after Thomas or Taylor talks that the story starts to veer away from both the original novel and Serling's script. So why don't we put aside for the moment the goings-on behind the scenes to get the movie made and find out what exactly are the differences between the 1968 Planet of the Apes film and Rod Serling's Planet of the Apes script. So let's begin with a tour. This is our Supreme Court building here. We have a three-branch government, much as you've described your own. Judicial, legislative, and executive. But there are no states or principalities or countries. We have but one country and one assembly to govern. This is the Church of the Earth. Again, we find similarity, Mr. Thomas, in that ours is a monotheistic society with a belief in one God. Except that here, church attendance is obligatory. Our industry is government-controlled, and our system of apprenticeship starts after the 15th year. Each of our citizens is tested as to skills and aptitudes, and is placed into his proper industrial capacity, or in another field of endeavor should his skills be otherwise specialized. Judging from what you've told us, Mr. Thomas, we have perhaps not advanced culturally as far as you have. There are very few ancient schools of art, or at least little evidence of same. But we are a reasonably young civilization here, with history and tradition accordingly undeveloped. But here again, we find similarities. Our day-to-day existence seems much like yours. I've heard people talk about Pierre Boulle's original novel and describe the ape society as technologically advanced, but it's not truly the case. The reality is that compared to the 1968 film, the society is advanced, but compared to life in the 60s when it was written, it was more that the ape society was on par with human society. There's nothing really futuristic about it, and Sailing script reflects that. And one of the things I've always thought about Planet of the Apes 1968 is that it doesn't so much feel like a planet of the apes, but more a town of the apes. You know, there's really not much of an idea of what goes on beyond the borders of that relatively small town. Now, there is this idea of the Forbidden Zone, which is partially responsible for that, because the apes aren't allowed to venture into it. So the story is confined to this area. 
but this was actually more of a cost exercise than something that was done to improve the story and doing it in this very localized non-city environment does throw up a few questions with the 68 film one of them is that this doesn't look like the kind of society that is advanced enough to make guns they appear more primitive than that now it's not a deal breaker but it is one of those small details that doesn't quite add up whereas in sailing script this truly is a planet of the apes because it takes place in a city like new york or london so there is that sense of scale and in her tour zira mentioned that this is a monotheistic society and that the apes do believe in one god but this isn't really explored any further in rod sailing's script the 1968 film introduces us to the lawgiver a moses-like figure that the apes are constantly quoting the teachings of dr zaius especially uses passages and quotes from the lawgiver's teachings to justify his treatment of taylor as a lesser being now in later planet of the apes films we actually find out that the lawgiver is quite a benevolent figure so he and the way his scriptures are used by other apes ends up being quite an interesting example of how the meaning of religious texts can be subverted by whoever is quoting them and what their agenda is A taxi pulls up to stop in front of a building. The driver gets out and opens the rear door. Zira gets out first, then the two of them help Thomas, who rubber-legged and with some difficulty, gets out of the back seat and stands insecurely and wavering on the sidewalk. Zira hands the driver a coin. Thanks so much. I'll see to him from here. Are you sure, Doctor? He don't look so good. Old friend, looks are deceiving. Now to you, I don't look so good. And to me, you look like the wrong end of a banana. But given time and reflection, the two of us will look like what we're supposed to be to one another. Check? Uh, check. In the 1968 film, when it's discovered that Taylor can talk, he's put on trial for heresy and is the prisoner of the apes. But Rod Sailing's script, as I mentioned earlier, sticks to the story as laid out by Pierre Boulle. Once they discover that Thomas can talk, he's given us freedom, he has an apartment, he can walk the city and go to the bars and the restaurants and become somewhat of a celebrity, a media darling. And this idea was actually picked up again in the third Planet of the Apes movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, where Cornelius and Zira land in present-day Earth. Once it's discovered that they can talk, then they become the media darlings. It's somewhat ironic that this portion that was ultimately thrown away in the final script ended up being the basis for the whole third movie in the series. 
but in reverse. But it's in this portion that I think Rod Serling does his best work. The theme of the perpetual foreigner was already in Bull's original novel, but Serling does what any good writer does when adapting a novel or basing a screenplay on a novel, as he said, and he distills that into a shorter, more concise screenplay. In the movie, Taylor is basically put on trial for being what he is, but it's a kind of dumbing down of Rod Serling's more subtle and nuanced examination of Thomas' experience when he's given his freedom. The scene we've just heard is after Thomas is dropped off in a cab, and he's in a melancholy mood, and he says to Zira, I think it's time to wake up now. It's been a very interesting and exciting dream, but it's time to wake up. Now Zira tells him that this isn't a dream, and Thomas compliments her on her apartment, but then says, You know something, Doctor? I think I'd prefer spending the night at the zoo. So one of the successes of Sailing Script is that he's able to convey the weariness that Thomas has because he is the perpetual foreigner. He's been given his freedom, but it's a freedom where he is constantly scrutinised, constantly criticised by Zaius, who fears what Thomas might mean to the ape species. And while he can walk the streets and go into the bars and shops, he'd rather spend the night at the zoo with the other humans, where he doesn't have to be subject to that scrutiny anymore. And while even Sailing himself describes his treatment as more serious, there are moments of levity, but again they're more subtle, and he doesn't succumb to the more pun-like humour of the finished movie. So as well as getting his freedom, Thomas is also able to secure the company of his female companion Nova, and on one occasion, Zira and Dr. Zaius drop in for a cup of tea. Good afternoon, Mr. Thomas. How are you, Dr. Zira? Dr. Zaius? Forgive us for being late. Enjoy your walk? Very much. Rather an historical afternoon. Several moments went by when nobody even looked at us. I think we're starting to blend with the scenery. Nova, my dear, would you pour the tea? Oh, my dear God. Would you care for lemon or cream, doctor? Lemon, Nova. Thank you. And you, doctor? Tell me, Mr. Thomas, what other tricks does your mate do? Dr. Zaius, according to your anthropology, it's taken you something close to 5,000 years to learn to walk upright. This woman has learned to speak in five weeks. I think you'd better go back to your books. Pour the doctor another cup, my dear, and make allowances for him. His hands and fingers aren't as agile as ours. (laughs) 
So the character of Nova serves as Thomas' link to the humanity of this planet. In Boole's novel, Ulysse does have a relationship with her, but this relationship is the cause of a lot of turmoil within him. She's beautiful, one of the most beautiful women he's ever seen, but she's mute, she's primitive, and in many ways no more than an animal herself. He has a relationship of sorts with her, and they have sex, but with that comes a certain amount of shame on the part of Ulysse because he has had sex with this being who is pretty much just human in look, but is more like an animal in behaviour. Ulysse is actually in many ways more attracted to Zira because of her personality and intellect, but he can't consummate that relationship because she's an ape. Now I have read Critique of Sailing Script where the scene where Nova pours tea to the apes described as silly, but it's not. You know, Nova is a human being who has fallen into savagery in line with the rest of humanity, but she has all the tools to rise above that with the help of Thomas, and we see that here, and we also see it in the original novel where Nova is ultimately able to talk. In the end, it was discarded from the finished script at Jacob's request, but in the finished film, there's probably no place for it anyway, considering they jettison this whole idea of Thomas being given his freedom. So to finish our comparisons, why don't we listen to a scene that did make it from Bull's novel, to Sailing Script, to the finished film, and we'll see if the words speak for themselves. Archaeology or line, Mr. Thomas? A hobby, Dr. Zayas. Indeed, you're quite remarkable, Mr. Thomas. You go from the floor of a cage to the holder of scientific opinions in the space of a month and a half. Given more time, I wonder how far you would go. I think the question is, how far would you let me go? or any of my kind for that matter. Your kind? I really don't think that question will ever get put to a test, Mr. Thomas. I don't think your kind wants to go very far, except perhaps to a higher limb on a tree. That's today, Dr. Zayas. What about yesterday? What about yesterday? Yesterday there was a civilized-looking cemetery constructed and filled by a civilized race. A race which, according to the consensus of your science, never got past the crawl and a couple of grunts. I think what's been uncovered here points up a couple of questions. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The ape or the man? Mr. Thomas, this is unequivocal and categorical. Man here is an animal. Man here was an animal. He had no civilization. He wore no clothing. He thought no thoughts. He spoke no language. Mr. Cornelius, you better take a look at this right away. 
a human doll, they had a language. While we swung from trees, they had a language. Dr. Zayas, what's been changed? Only a historical fact that man was once the dominant creature on this planet. Something has been changed, Mr. Thomas. To this moment, all we've uncovered is a question. Now we have to dig deeper. Now we have to unearth an answer. If man had a civilization here, what happened to it? What are you doing? Reconstructing a past life. You say these things were found at the same level as that doll? Whoever owned him must have been in pretty bad shape. He wore false teeth. And eyeglasses. He had a failing heart. Towards the end, he had this prefabricated valve put in it. I don't say it was a man like I knew at home, but he must have been a close relative because he had all the same weaknesses. He was a weak, fragile animal. But he was here before you, and he was better than you are. Catch, lunacy. I can offer alternate descriptions of every one of those articles, which is just as ingenious as yours. But it'd be conjecture, not proof. Zayas, would an ape make a human doll that talks? One of the most memorable and enduring images from Planet of the Apes is the twist ending. While the film gives us clues leading up to the twist, like the talking doll, I think the intent is to try and lead the audience to believe that this is still another planet, but Taylor has uncovered that man was once the dominant species on it, but not necessarily his mankind. So the film wants to fool you into thinking the plot is like Pierre Boulle's book. As I mentioned earlier, the planet of the apes in the book isn't Earth, but the planet Saror, a completely separate world where apes have taken the place of man. Ulysses does actually manage to escape the planet and return to Earth, but what happens there is another story. So in the movie version, we get these clues, but it's only when Taylor rides away with Nova that we get that Earth-shattering ending. Oh my God, I'm back. I'm home. All the time it was... Finally, really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! So there are two things here that are a complete change from Pierre Boulle's novel. The fact that Taylor is on Earth and then subsequently the use of the Statue of Liberty as a thing that confirms to Taylor that this is the case. 
So whose idea was it to do these things? Now my initial instinct is to say, Rod Sailing. Because in the Twilight Zone episode, I shot an arrow into the air. Three astronauts survive when their ship crashes on an alien planet. Under the baking sun and with water in short supply, one of the survivors dispatches of the others to ensure his own survival. But at the end, he climbs over a rocky hill and makes a shocking discovery. Pearson! Oh! <laughs> now I know what you meant. Now I know what you were trying to describe. <laughs> Telephone poles. You were trying to draw telephone poles. We'd never left the Earth. That's why nobody tracked us. We never left the Earth. We just... We just crashed back into it. Donlin. Pearson, what have I done? I'm sorry. Oh, no. Practical joke perpetrated by Mother Nature and a combination of improbable events. Practical joke wearing the trappings of nightmare, of terror, of desperation. Small human drama played out in a desert 97 miles from Reno, Nevada. USA, continent of North America, the Earth, and of course, the Twilight Zone. I Shot an Arrow Into the Air is, in a lot of ways, a proto-planet of the apes, without the apes. But substitute telephone poles with the Statue of Liberty, and there you have it. Now, as is often the case with good ideas, everyone likes to think it was theirs. Now, in the 1975 Marvel Comics interview, the interviewer asks the question, so in the denouement in the film version, Charlton Heston and Linda Harrison riding along the beach past the tip of the Statue of Liberty, indicating that the astronauts had landed on their own planet in the future, was that Sailing's? And Sailing responds, yes, in collaboration with Jacobs. And the associate producer of the finished film, Mort Abrams, backs this up by saying simply, that was Rod. That was Rod's ending. Now Arthur Jacobs recalls, I was having lunch with Blake Edwards. I said to him at the time, it doesn't work, it's too predictable. Then I said, what if he was on Earth the whole time, and doesn't know, and the audience doesn't know? Blake said, that's terrific, let's get a hold of Rod. As we walked out, we looked up and there's this big Statue of Liberty on the wall of the Delicatessen. We both looked at each other and said, Rosebud. If we'd never had lunch at that delicatessen, I doubt we would have had the Statue of Liberty as the end of the picture. Now Rod Serling made a rebuttal to this in a 1971 interview in Cine Fantastique, in which he says, I never heard that story. I don't know how to say this diplomatically. It doesn't seem to ring true. The book's ending is what I wanted to use in the film. 
as much as I've always loved the idea of the Statue of Liberty as the end of the picture, I always believed that was my idea. Now the interviewer who had interviewed several people involved in the film commented, I'm beginning to think from all the interviews I've done that the end of the picture was a combination of about four or five people thinking exactly the same thing at about the same time and sailing diplomatically replies, that's very possible. So the plot thickens and the writer of the book, The Legend of the Planet of the Apes, Brian Pendray, weighs in on this when he interviewed Blake Edwards and Blake says, it was a combined effort between myself and an artist called Don Peters. And then Pendray confronts him with the Jacob story about the delicatessen and Edwards responds with, that's the biggest, most elaborate lie that could be made. He had nothing to do with the Statue of Liberty, absolutely nothing. It originated between myself and Peters, and if I had to give most of the credit, as I recall, it was pretty much done. It's an interesting story, and we may have had lunch there, but as far as seeing the Statue of Liberty, Arthur's a good publicist. I hate to call him a liar. Now, Pendray does put in here a caveat that when he spoke with Edwards, he said he remembered very little about the project, but also got some details wrong, like saying Sailing left the project before Blake Edwards did, which definitely isn't true. So Pendray then tracks down Don Peters, who says, My involvement was, Blake called me one day and asked if I would like to redesign the world. So I went to the library and made some sketches. And Don Peters remembered meeting with Jacobs, Edwards and Sailing during this time on the project and said that Jacobs was not an easy man to work with, calling him a paranoid schizophrenic and a total neurotic. But of the Statue of Liberty ending, he said, it was my idea. At least three of the paintings I did were the Statue of Liberty. And when the writer, Pendray asks him whether anyone asked him to do the paintings. He replied, it was my idea. I never asked for credits. Now, in his 14th of October memo to Blake Edwards, Arthur Jacobs writes an idea for an ending that he wants to use. And it goes like this, the great escape. Cornelius and Zira steal a helicopter to transport Thomas and Lefebvre to the site of the ship. Once they are in the air and halfway to their destination, Cornelius discovers via space radio that they are being pursued by guerrillas on order of Zeus, and it's known they are in a medical helicopter. Cornelius then says that they have recently discovered a strange statue at a location which is near to the site of Thomas's ship. There are several helicopters belonging to the scientific expedition there. The guerrillas are coming closer in pursuit. Cornelius suggests they land at the site, put Thomas and Lefebvre into another helicopter, and Thomas will then safely go back to his ship, while Cornelius and Zira in the medical helicopter become decoys and go in the wrong direction, giving Thomas and Lefebvre time to get to their ship and off to safety. They land at the excavation. The sun is rising and we see some unidentifiable statue. They say goodbye, 
Thomas and Lefebvre's helicopter goes off in the distance to the left. As the sun is rising, Cornelius and Zira in the medical helicopter go off to the right as the guerrillas follow Cornelius in closer pursuit. As the helicopter disappears in both directions and the sun rises, the camera swings around and reveals Rosebud. And Rosebud was their nickname for the Statue of Liberty scene. And further down in the memo he says, I think that Don has come up with some wonderful ideas, but there are two things which I personally object to. Firstly, the men shooting up in the pods, even though such things do exist now, they seem to give it a Buck Rogers approach, and as there's no gravity problem, it seems unnecessary. Now that's not specifically connected to the Statue of Liberty line, but it does show that Jacobs is addressing Don Peter's ideas in the same conversation. And the fact that Rod Serling's first draft is set on Earth, but doesn't use the Statue of Liberty ending, kind of pours water on Jacob's claim that he thought of both things while he was at lunch, because Serling had already written that it was on Earth. One of the things that I've been reading a lot about is, you know, who got the idea for what? And there's so many different versions of, of who developed what and, you know, what came first. So from what you've just said there, it would, because I know that Rod Sailing wanted to use the ending from the book, didn't he? Originally, yes. So did he take direction from Jacobs uh, that actually, no, he wanted it to be on Earth, so that's why Sailing wrote the first draft this way that you know of? I don't know. I do know that um, Bull was really unhappy with the Statue of Liberty scene in letters. Bull was truly unhappy with it. And I actually thought that was a nice way that Sterling was acknowledging Bull by throwing in the Statue of Liberty, which, of course, was France's gift to America. Mm. Uh, I thought that was actually quite novel of him to do that. And it made it distinctly American at the same time. So so Liberty itself... Uh... That, I think that's the main thing where everyone seems to want to lay claim to responsibility for it, and everyone thinks it was their idea. What, what do you think of that? Well, it's in Sterling's script, period. Mm-hmm. Um, so no writer after Sterling can lay claim to that. In one of the letters, in one of the letters, Sterling said, uh, Jacob says, Sterling's good with the rosebud. They refer to it as the rosebud after it's written. Yeah. It's in Sterling's scripts. I give Sterling full credit for it. Um, I think it's odd that people fight over who came up with the idea for the Statue of Liberty in the Sand, because it's in his words. Uh And then Wilson, in fact, was against it. Wilson um, wanted to change it, um, because in in the final script that Wilson was given to revise, and then, of course, he rewrote it completely, Thomas dies at the end. Mm. And Wilson said... You can't have Thomas die at the end. That's too much tragedy. But in this original script, if it is set on Earth, how is that reveal handled? The whole film's damaged. It won't show us a thing. Most of it, yes. But there was a certain section... Just a few feet.
Now this is your place. This is where you'll serve America best. Young men of America, your future's in the sky. Your wings are waiting. Shut it off now, will you? What was it? What have we just seen? The following is not a hypothesis. The following is truth. Much of it has to be offered without explanation, but all of it comes to you as fact. This is Earth. What you've uncovered is the remnant of an Earth society, 500, maybe a thousand years old. But Earth, my planet, a planet that I left centuries ago and have inexplicably, totally inexplicably returned to, time warp or, or something, some incredible divergence caused by speed and by space. But my ship obviously travelled more than just miles. It also went ahead in time. What was that film, Mr. Thomas? A hydrogen bomb. What was on Earth an ultimate weapon? That bomb, and probably many like it, were finally dropped. It buried Earth. It turned it into a jungle, and from it emerged... You. And a handful of human beings. Descendants of the bomb. Only this time round, the ape became the dominant creature, and man evolved as the animal. I've been haunted by this damn thing. When I looked at your geological maps, in some incredible way they resembled an earth that I knew. Certain features had been changed, obviously caused by the bombs. Different bodies of water, different mountain chains, different topographical features, but again, vaguely similar to the Earth. The planets, the bodies, the stars. Somewhere along the line, Venus left its orbit, and now we're the second planet from the Sun. But I've seen the others through your telescopes. Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Pluto. This is Earth. There isn't any reasonable doubt. This is Earth. I guess we can't really talk Planet of the Apes without talking about the ending, and that's something that is so very different in this first draft. It's done at a screening of some film that they've recovered from a dig. Yes. What are your thoughts on how sailing handles this part of Planet of the Apes, This, especially in comparison to how the reveal is handled in the finished film? Can I step backwards? Sure. Certainly he wanted to improve on the original ending when, when Alfred Jacobs wanted to sell this film and he went to the productions. He tried to sell it that it would have this wow ending and they might even show the LA airport, the LAX airport, was his proposal for this knockout ending. So they knew it was going to be Earth all along. The film I was actually quite impressed with because today we have where you have a film within a film it's almost over that genre, but by then that would have been quite revolutionary. Mm. I don't remember any other films that were that would have a film within a film. He did that in a Twilight Zone episode, 16 millimeter Shrine, 
where it was acknowledging the industry within it. I think that would have been quite interesting, but it instantly would have put it in the future. So that was the problem. I don't know. The first script has so many holes, and that's one of them. I By the end, I think Serling was tired, and he was looking for things to, to tie up the loose ends. In the film, took care of that. This is the story of the first draft of Planet of the Apes, and there would be more drafts by Serling, two that I know of, but that's a story for another day, and I will tell it. So everything now seemed to be in place, with Arthur Jacobs producing, Rod Serling writing, and Blake Edwards directing. But then when the budget was prepared, it came in at almost $7.5 million, which would be about $144 million now. And although that's quite normal now, in those days that was just too much for Warner Brothers to get behind. And the project once again stalled, and Blake Edwards left as director. But what about Rod Serling? Of course, we know that the project didn't stay dead. It did actually get made. But when it did return, Serling too had departed the project to be replaced with another. The headline reads, Earthman Space Traveller, a hoax. There are several pictures of Thomas delivering a speech, going on a tour, being interviewed. Then another sub-headline that reads, Scientific Academy admits, Creature was mechanical man. Dr. Zayas enters a room in the hospital, and stands staring down at Thomas. You no doubt understand, Mr. Thomas, that there was no spacecraft. No visitors from another planet, or this planet of years ago. It was a hoax. A gigantic, complicated, practical joke. And there was no moment in time when man spoke, or thought, or created. It never happened, Mr. Thomas. Dr. Zayas opens the door, and as it swings open sitting in the next room is a replica of Thomas, but a perfect replica. Slowly the figure looks up, opens its eyes, rises from the chair, takes a few steps forward, then stops, smiles, and speaks in a replica of Thomas's voice. Good afternoon. I'm John Thomas from the planet Earth. Three of us arrived here some months ago. Good afternoon. I'm John Thomas from the planet Earth. Three of us arrived here some months ago. Not perfect, Mr. Thomas, but you acknowledge that we were good imitators. This is good enough. It was this, this creature, who spoke in front of the assembly, went out on a tour, visited an archaeological expedition. So why the hell don't you get on with it, Dr. Zayas? Bring a syringe, a scalpel, or a cleaver, but get it over with. It's really quite incredible. A human race that can build a ship, send it into space, guide it, conquer every one of the elements, 
a human race that sophisticated, dumb enough and wishful enough to think that apes can be civilized because they wear shirts and ties. God, but we've got a lot to learn. I've read Sailing Script a few times now, and I, I actually, I've actually become quite fond of it. And I mentioned this last time we spoke as well. The thing that, that I do find, find a little jarring is one of the weaker aspects of it, where he uses a robot near the end. You know, yes. it, it just seems to come out of nowhere. I think it's a cheap trick. I truly do. Serling, by his nature, by this point, I, yes, he wrote for Playhouse 90, but what Sterling is truly known for is the quick, tight, 24-minute dramas. Mm -hmm. He wrote for radio in college and then professionally, and then he went to TV. His most sex successful writing is not an hour and a half long. Yeah. It's writes in segments. And if you look at the Planet of the Apes scripts he wrote, they almost read like segments that are tied together. He's uh -huh. not, it's not a very good, strong thread between them. Yeah. The robot... It, it's a cheap gimmick, and in the original book, it's like the doll, the doll that says data. It's just a, a gimmick. Um, it puts it in the future, and I don't think that would have survived. February 14th, 1967. Dear Arthur Morton Frank, I have been unhappy with the title of this picture from the outset. Every friend in the industry with whom I've discussed this project shares my dim view of the title without solicitation on my part. It is generally felt that Planet of the Apes is a B title, the sort of thing one might expect to see on the late show of Channel 13. I offer herewith a few alternative titles. Our Second Adam, The Last Seed, The Survivors, Adam 2, Michael. So that substitute, that new writer was named Michael Wilson, and he was the one who was responsible for the finished screenplay that was used. But the actual handover went something like this. November 12th, 1966. Dear Mr. Wilson, as per my conversation this morning with George Leto, I attach herewith the following material on Planet of the Apes. One, the original novel by Pierre Boulle. Two, the screenplay by Rod Serling. Three, a copy of a memorandum to various people at Fox on our proposed changes. Four, a letter and a draft written by Boole on his own after reading the Rod Serling screenplay. Our problem is that Charlton Heston has committed to the Serling screenplay with the understanding that his character would be more fully developed as per my memorandum to David Brown, and that Fox has committed several million dollars to go into production in May. Therefore, some of Boole's suggestions, such as the spaceship peopled with hundreds of humans, would be impossible from a financial point of view. I do hope the attached material proves of interest to you, and I hope that I will hear from you or George early next week. Kindest regards, Arthur P. Jacobs. March 15th, 1967. Dear Arthur, in a few days, I will have completed the revised screenplay of Planet of the Apes, except for the final sequence, the substance of which is the only remaining bone of contention. In past conferences, you have stated that Thomas should die at the end of the picture. 
and both Mort and Frank have more recently supported this view. I have given considerable thought to this finale, and have tried to accommodate your position. However, I have come to believe more firmly than ever that to kill Thomas off would be a grave mistake. Oh, it is possible that your preference for the so-called tragic ending is a holdover from a previous and altogether different script. Rod Serling's a screenplay is a science fiction melodrama, solemn and earnest in tone, and in his treatment of the material, Thomas's death does indeed, as you suggest, add stature to the whole piece. Now, my screenplay, on the other hand, while on one plane a tale of suspense and terror, is basically a satire. My treatment of the material, I think you will agree, is often light and playful and outrageous. A, a measure of mordant wit and sardonic comment is made possible by the changed characterization of Thomas, from whose point of view the entire picture is seen. In the classic sense of the term, my screenplay is a comedy, just as Gulliver's Travels, a Connecticut Yankee, and Animal Farm are comedies. This being so, the question of Thomas's fate is not a matter of personal preference or taste. His death would not add stature to the story that I have told. It would simply be inappropriate. It would be inconsistent with the satiric mode of the picture. The final revelation of our film, that we are on Earth, and that man in his folly has blown up his civilization, is both satiric and tragic. This catastrophe cannot be topped by having Thomas die. His death becomes anticlimactic, merely a morbid aftermath. It's not that I'm bucking for a happier, uplifting ending. If Thomas lives, he faces a grim struggle for survival as the only evolved human on Earth. Scarcely a happy prospect, but such an ending is consistent with the satiric theme of the picture. I think it's both amusing and just that Thomas, who in the beginning of our story was a misanthrope and cynic, is fated to carry the terrible burden of a second Adam. It befalls the man who is contemptuous of humanity to rehumanize the species. Whether he will succeed or fail, no one knows, and we leave it to the audience to speculate on the odds for or against survival. I find such a finale intriguing and satisfying, and I believe audiences will react as I do. Now, you may argue that pregnant Nova fulfills this function, that she carries within her the hope and possibility of recreating civilized man. It just ain't so. This mute girl will never teach her child to speak. Without his father, Thomas's son will remain as backward as all the other brutes in the jungle, and humankind is doomed. Let me remind you once again that the entire story is told from Thomas's point of view. We see what he sees of the ape civilization and nothing more. In effect, therefore, the last surviving civilized man on Earth is telling his own story. If we kill him off at the end, we kill off our narrator, and I find this singularly fortuitous and illogical. At any rate, I ask you to reconsider your position on the ending in the light of the above observations. I can write the so-called tragic ending, but to be candid, it'll be written without conviction of its merit. Sincerely, Michael Wilson. In the 1975 Marvel Comics interview, Sailing's response when he was asked what happened with the project was, while Arthur and I kept in touch over a period of time, but then he decided to give the script to Mike Wilson, who in turn took away almost all of my dialogue and used his own. My recollection, though, of the shooting script is that the chronology of scenes and events was identical to mine, except that the people didn't say the same things. For example, there was the museum scene where you see the astronauts stuffed. That was mine, 
but I didn't have the dialogue that covered it. Mine was a much more sombre and serious dialogue. There was very little humour in my piece. If you recall, Wilson used a lot of puns and juxtaposed familiar expressions like I've never met an ape I didn't like, that kind of thing. I gather the humour was one of the key reasons for the success of the picture. I blew it, and Wilson did it. And in the end, he says, it's really Mike Wilson's screenplay, much more than mine. With the actual finished film itself, how much do you attribute of it to Rod Serling? I attribute very little to Rod Serling. Rod Serling finished, it was a contractual obligation that he met every point of the of the contract that he signed in 1964. Yeah. And it says in the contract, if he receives sole writing credit, he will receive an additional $25,000 for this. Serling was, um, he fulfilled it. He was also the known writer of the time. Wilson, who had been blacklisted um, and should have received an Academy Award earlier for his writing, was a respected screenwriter. But at the same time, it was just coming out of that era of ghostwriting. But so Serling's had some cachet to it. I mean, this is, when it came out in 1968, Twilight Zone is is in reruns, um, in syndication. Everyone knows that he's the guy with cigarettes. They forgot about Playhouse 90, but they know Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And they know this is a guy that's going to scare you, even though he didn't write scary Twilight Zones. He's the man that when you hear that music and you see his face in that cigarette, you know you're going to be entertained. He was part of the shine of the movie. Right. And I don't see a lot of Serling philosophy in the finished Planet of the Apes. And when I ask people who know Planet of the Apes, I go, show me one line of dialogue or one point of philosophy of Rod Serling in the script, and they can't. They'll say, well, he changed the story. The scene of the surgery, perhaps one person said the the scar on the face, that's not a lot. This is, I don't see this this bravado of, and excuse me, I'm not against men, but this bravado of forcing yourself and overtaking and escaping as Serling at all. Serling believed in understanding the human conditioning and understanding the other and at least attempting to and standing in your own truth. So I don't see that in any of the finished film. It, it ended up being uh, bravado. And I look at all of Sterling's writings, and I don't see bravado once. I mean, his most famous TV play, which is Requiem for a Heavyweight, is about a man that could have been, could have been the greatest fighter. Uh-huh. And then what happens is he finds an idea of self-worth. So... I don't see Planet of the Apes as Serling at all. And, and I would say anyone who does say Serling wrote Planet of the Apes, say, show me where his, his philosophy is or where his dialogue is found in the script. And if they can't, you have to say, then what are we, what are we judging this by? He was part of the process, though. Yeah, I, I think for me, when, when you look at it, and especially when you look at the subsequent, subsequent drafts, it's... Um, I think he he kind of he's the one who cracks the code. He he solves some problems. He he gets things moving. He he starts to put shape to it, doesn't he? And I think by his third draft, which is a bit more recognizable with the finished film, you you kind of get maybe the best of both worlds in a way. It, it it does move a bit more 
Um, you have things like the Statue of Liberty in it and so on, but he's still, he's still got something to say. And it seems that Michael Wilson then came in and, and just took the beats, but forgot to put the message in there. Yes. And I have, I can read it. It's a letter Michael Wilson wrote to Arthur Jacobs, uh, March 15th, 1967. And I'm quoting Wilson where he says, Rod Serling's screenplay is a science fiction melodrama, mm. solemn and earnest in tone and in his treatment of the material Thomas's death does indeed, as you put it, give stature to the whole piece. But he says, my screenplay, on the other hand, while on a plain tale of suspense and terror, is basically a satire. My treatment of the material, I think you will agree, is often light and playful and outrageous. And so he's, he's, and he says, from his point of view, the, of Wilson's point of view, his film is humorous just like Animal Farm is a comedy. So even Wilson, at the very beginning before his film, is saying, we have two different pieces here. We have two different ways to approach this. I find it quite sad to hear Rod Sailing say that he blew it because he didn't have that humorous aspect the way Michael Wilson did. Because looking back at the finished film now, those puns that he mentioned are one of the things that have actually aged quite badly. And it's one of the things that modern reviewers actually criticize. In the end, I don't think Arthur Jacob's tireless work to bring Planet of the Apes to the screen can be ignored. He was its champion, he was the one who recognized the value of it. And in choosing Rod Sailing to write the screenplay, he did make a great choice because he chose a writer who would recognize the messages in Pierre Boulle's novel and then streamline them for the film. And that's exactly what he did. Boulle's novel was intelligent and contemplative and was perfect material for Rod Sailing. He was a good fit. And while Jacobs did bring some good ideas to the production, it seems that as the project wore on, he was essentially cutting out the very thing he had hired Sailing to bring into it. He was cutting out the thing that made Sailing, Sailing. When I read the communication between Jacobs, Sailing and Blake Edwards, maybe it's because I'm a Rod Sailing fan and... Jacobs is very sort of, let's change this, let's change this. Do you get a sense that this was a volatile relationship or, or is this just a Hollywood relationship? You know, this is the way it goes. I, I believe that this was actually a, a quite friendly relationship. He got along well with Alfred P. Jacobs. They had worked together for TV. And when it comes to Blake Edwards, I don't know the relationship between him. When I spoke to Blake Edwards on the phone years ago, when I interviewed him about this subject, he recalled it fondly. He, he remembered... Um, Rod Serling fondly, uh -huh. but they were not buddies. But Serling wanted to do well, but in the film industry, I don't think the writer was treated as well as Serling would have hoped. But they wanted a certain thing, and they wanted this to be a knockout film in the sense, and Serling, Serling wanted to write a thoughtful narrative. Thomas lies strapped to a cot. He looks around the white-walled and ceilinged room, lets his eyes rest on a clock which reads five minutes to nine. He looks sharply towards the door at the sound of footsteps, waits expectantly 
as the footsteps grow louder. The door opens. A nurse enters followed by a white-coated young doctor. And then, Dr. Zayas. I know you can hear me, Mr. Thomas, even though you can't respond. I do not expect forgiveness, but I would request understanding. Man was dominant. He could be dominant again. And with him would come all of his gifts, his sciences, his wisdom, his logic, all the products of his complicated, complex brain. But with him also would come, Mr. Thomas, the other aspects of the human personality, his hatreds, his prejudices, all his tireless energies that left him sitting in his own rubble. Because this will always be the end result of man, what he deeds to himself, a burned out, charred, scorched billion acres of nothing. This was our legacy once. We don't want it again. He turns away as a surgeon comes closer, carrying a scalpel. The scalpel slowly thrusts forward to a section of Thomas' forehead and cuts deeply across it. The head seems to pop open and inside we're looking at coils, wires, tubes that hiss, smoke and lights that go bright and then go dead. This isn't Thomas. This is the robot. There's room for you, Zira. There's room, Mr. Thomas. But there's no place. Wherever you go, wherever you land, it will be the two of you beginning again. It must be this way. They'll be over here soon. They'll miss the helicopter and they'll track it. You have to leave now, Mr. Thomas. Right now. It will be right now. Will you be able to join the spacecraft? Eventually. We'll meet it in orbit. Then go with God, Mr. Thomas. That's an old expression. It comes from both ape and man. God bless you. You will be pleased to know, Dr. Zira, that your friends joined the mother ship, and it just left its orbit. It's heading out into space. I would have had it no other way, Doctor. May I ask why not? Because... Because if they survive and start again, they have it within their power to make a good world. At least they should have the chance. And how shall I deal with you? I don't care. I really don't care. I really don't care.
what I like about Serling's draft is that it's a hopeful piece of fiction. Serling's hope, and this is in 1964, Serling wrote a piece that was about race relations. And Serling's hope was that it would promote a dialogue. And instead, by the time the finished version comes along, and this is not an insult to the film, by the time the finished version comes along, you know, the two most memorable lines of the film are actually about domination and not about integration. And I think that's that's the shift. And Serling really wanted this film to work. Amy, you know, it, it's always fascinating to talk to you and get your insights on this this version of Rod Serling's Planet of the Apes. So thanks so much for talking to me today. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. All right. Take care, Amy. Speak to you later. Bye. Bye. So with Serling now departed, it's easy to look at the finished film and what it took to bring it to the screen and feel that maybe he was underappreciated in this process. He was hired with a particular set of skills and a particular pedigree for a work that suited his sensibilities. But then the very thing he was hired for was the thing that Jacobs didn't want. Say what you like about Sailing's first draft, but it is a good adaptation of Boole's book, the very thing that he was hired to adapt. I'm not casting anyone as a villain in this story. You know, for better or worse, Planet of the Apes was made, it was a huge hit, and I love the movie that we've got. It spawned four sequels, a TV series, an animated series, a one-off remake in 2000, and then a further remake series with three films at the time of this recording. There have been action figures, tie-in novels, and a multitude of comic books. Before Star Wars, Planet of the Apes was the sci-fi blockbuster that changed the film industry. So while what ended up on screen isn't really Rod Serling's Planet of the Apes, we can't really criticise its success. But I can't help but ask myself, what if? I feel that as the apes phenomenon reaches its 50th year, there is renewed interest in what part Rod Serling played in it. Later in the year, Boom Studios are releasing a comic book adaptation of Serling's version, so at the very least we can better visualise what it could have been like. We'll probably never see it filmed, but I would love to see it maybe animated. I think that could be a really great thing to see. And Rod Serling would be the first to tell you that this first draft isn't perfect. But as he said, it is a first draft. First drafts are first drafts for a reason. They're the things you put on paper to figure things out and to see what works and what doesn't work. And then you can fine tune and tweak and move forward and that is what Sailing did. We're not talking about his next drafts today, but I happen to think that by the time Sailing left the project, the last draft he wrote had solved the problems of the first, and would have satisfied as both a piece of adventure, but also a piece with a real intelligence in it, and something to say. The associate producer of Planet of the Apes, Mort Abrams, said, Rod Sailing did a screenplay which really cracked the problem of translating the book to the screen. He also had the inherent problem, which plagued us for five years of 
how are you going to do a picture about apes that talk? It was a terrific script because it really solved, I'd say, 80% of the story problems. So when we look back at all this or the studio politics or the backwards and forwards with production and writers and trying to get things to the screen, I think here lies the key in this quote. Someone had to take the first stab at it. Someone had to take the hit and someone had to crack the code. In the end, Sailing might not have been the writer that Arthur Jacobs wanted, but he was the writer the Planet of the Apes needed. Pierre Boulle wrote the original novel, but in the movie universe, Rod Sailing was there first. On Earth, the Earth that I knew, the apes possessed a highly developed sense of mimicry. They copied everything we did, copied us, so much that with us the verb ape was synonymous with imitate. But our own culture, Mr. Thomas. You don't have a culture, Mr. Cornelius, or a science, or an industry. The houses you live in, the buildings you occupy, the clothes you wear, the things you believe, the books you read, the very God you worship. They came from man. 500, a thousand years ago, but not from an ape mind or an ape will, or the logic or reason or rationale of an ape. You're imitators. You've been mimicking the creature man who was there ahead of you. I'd like to thank the following people who made this episode possible. For her time, research and insight, Amy Boyle Johnston, board member of the Rod Sailing Memorial Foundation and author of Unknown Sailing, an episodic history, available at Amazon and all good booksellers. Brandy Jacola for reading as The Computer, Nova and Zira. Listen to her podcast, The Dark Corner, at darkcornerpodcast.com. Craig Beam, for reading as Arthur Jacobs. Listen to his podcast, Between Light and Shadow, at mylifeinthashadowofthetwilightzone.blogspot.com. Fred, for reading as The Ape Doctor. Listen to his podcast, The Twilight Pwn, at twilightpwn.libsyn.com. And to Jeff Holland for reading as Michael Wilson. Listen to his podcast, The Slumgullion, at slumgullionpodcast.blogspot.com. I'd also like to credit the books Planet of the Apes Revisited by Joe Russo, Larry Landsman and Edward Gross and The Legend of the Planet of the Apes by Brian Pendray. We will return to the Planet of the Apes in Lawgiver, a Planet of the Apes podcast. <laughs>